Hello lovely people, how are you doing? I hope you are good and I hope life is treating you well. But look, if you're trying really hard at the moment, just, you know, feeling a bit, well, stuck, then let me introduce you to the brilliant crime fiction author, Angela Marsons. Be prepared to be inspired. Although Angela or Angie loved writing as a child, she never thought she would ever be able to one day make a living from it. But she carried on writing around her day job as an adult and then she started submitting them. And then the rejections came and they came and they came. Angie carried on though, wait for it, for 25 years. With the help of her partner Julie, every time she got knocked down, they found the strength together to get Angie back up again and carry on. And thank heavens they did because one day everything changed and now she has sold more than 4 million books. Yes, you heard that right, 4 million books. I'll let Angie tell you what happened, but there are more twists and turns in this story than most crime novels. Angie believes however stuck we feel, we must all keep going. Her story is one of dedication, inspiration, hard work and resilience. And it's about having that special someone by your side, whoever that may be, who truly believes in you, no matter what. We also discuss orange ponchos and Russell Brand, but well, I'll let you listen to find out why. I still remember the moment I heard Angie's story on the days I have my wobbles as a new writer, which honestly is most days I think of Angie's story, so I feel honoured I can now share it with you. It's helped me so much with my next chapter, and now I'm really hoping it might be able to help you with yours. Hello and welcome to the next chapter by Ellie Barker. The idea behind this podcast is that as I start my next chapter from journalist to indie author, I speak with some incredible people who've already started their next chapter in the hope it might help you with your next chapter, or at the very least, you'll just enjoy the conversation. So here she is, Angela Marsons. Angie Marsons, welcome to the next chapter by Ellie Barker. Thank you so much for joining me. You're very welcome. It's lovely to be here. I've listened to um, others and they're absolutely great. So I'm absolutely thrilled to uh, stop by and have a chat. Wow. Well, I will, we, I will explain exactly as we go along why this is particularly such a thrill for me. But let's begin because this is all about you, um, Angie. And so let's begin as we always do with your prologue. So you grew up in Cradley Heath in the Black Country and you say you were the second youngest of four children you had three sisters, not much money floating around, and your dad was a long-distance lorry driver. So, what was it? What, was, what yeah. was your sort of child? What? How would you describe your childhood? Um, I, like I said, there, there wasn't too much money, but um, you know, we we you you always think your own childhood is completely normal and what everybody else is, you know, experiencing and. Uh, very much the same as everybody else in the street kind of thing um you know we were all out playing um we had a park right at the end of the the street so yeah i mean i was probably you know i, I did get told off for just talking to strangers because you know if there was no one around i'd just sit on the seesaw on the park and ask if passing people wanted to stop and talk to me <laughs> so you know i did get told off by my mom for doing that quite a few times um so yeah i mean we you know it, it was a a good childhood like i say it wasn't you know too too much money but um being the youngest of of three girls i had the hand-me-downs 
Um, and I think I mentioned in what I wrote to you that um, my auntie uh, crocheted all three of us um, bright orange ponchos. Brilliant. And I was still wearing them because, of course, I had the joy of, of wearing all three. Uh, so I had my own to outgrow, then my next sister, and then my next sister. So were you known as the orange poncho girl? I think I might have been. Not to my face necessarily, but behind my back I probably was known as that, amongst other things. Well, you had like an abundance <laughs> yeah. of all these clothes. I mean, you could look at it like that, but I can understand your frustration. I think the, the thing is, though, it's like our clothes weren't particularly fashionable anyway. But I think by the time I got them, it, they were in danger of actually coming back into fashion. You know, I had I had flares. I finally got some flares long, long, long after people had stopped wearing them. I thought these flares were absolutely brilliant. Um, yeah, not 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 so much really. Looking yeah. back, <laughs> I'm sure you carried it off. I'm sure you did. And at school, you said you were a good pupil. And now this is doesn't surprise me when I hear all this that that you were a little bit distracted. And you were always um, you always in your school reports they said you would do so much better if you perhaps minded your own business. But I think this is a good thing. Every school report said the same, and it used to drive my parents absolutely mad um, because they would say, you know, just focus, just, just, you know, focus on yourself. But I couldn't, um, I am so nosy. Um, I'm the sort of person that, you know, now social media is a nightmare because if I actually see some, you know, some kind of drama kicking off, I'll follow it, even though it's got nothing to do with me. And that's exactly what I was like at school. So, you know, people might be having an argument. Oh, I've got to get involved. I've got to get in there and, you know, find out what was going on. And and it's like what your mum said, you know, there you were always talking to strangers. But look, this was all leading you up to this. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I mean, you know, by doing that, you learn so much about people. Um, but, and you know, that's the official response is I, I enjoyed learning about people. But the truth is, I am just nosy. I am just nosy. I want to know everybody's business. <laughs> so I admit it. There you go. It's true. That's all right. I'm a journalist. I like nosy people. So this is good. This is good. So and at school, um, you said it was actually an English teacher who sort of spotted that you had something very special going on. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I can't actually remember now what, what caused her to keep me aside. But I think I might have been 12 13 and she just said you know I think I think you know you, you you're good at this can I bring you in some uh, books above your reading age and of course I was absolutely over the moon um I didn't think I was good at anything I just kind of like ambled through school in an average kind of way um and so I was I, I, I couldn't believe it I was absolutely to be singled out in in that way was just completely you know, alien. And she bought me some Andrea Newman books and I took them home and I read them. And that was when, you know, I, I realised that, you know, because of the emotions those books provoked in me, it made me want to do that. I, you know, I wanted to read, but I also realised that I wanted to do that, you know, to, to people as well, to readers that I wanted to provoke those emotions in other people. And that and that was that was really really how it started. I mean, I, I suppose one thing I used to love as a kid was I used to love the feel of pencil on paper, and I used to love to write um, using you know pe pencils 
and paper and that's still how I write my first draft now is with you know A4 notepads and, and big pencils um, and I just loved the process of feeling that scratch um, going across across the paper which is strange that I still do it that way now um, but yeah so that that was how I sort of like realised that I wanted to be telling the stories was um, when that English teacher um, just said that you know she she thought that it was something I was good at <laughs> on another note we, we used to you know I, I don't know if people will remember when it was GCSEs and O-levels, um, CSEs and O-levels. And I remember doing home economics. Um, and I remember more being told something I was bad at. We had to have a meeting with the um, teacher to be told whether or not we should go for CSE cooking or O-level cooking. And she told me to go for needlework. <laughs> so, you know, that gave her <laughs> yeah, an idea of where I was going in that direction. So being told that you were good at something, was actually, you know, it, it really was quite, you know, flattering. Before we move on, do you do the cooking now? I do, actually. Wow. <laughs> Julie can cook. She just doesn't like her own cooking, so I actually do do yeah. the cooking. Yeah, she, she wants boiled an egg for 45 minutes. Yeah. So, no, we don't let Julie do the cooking. No, no. I, I can't <laughs> imagine what your teacher would have made of her, but still, that's another story. So, but the other thing as well, and I did have to, <laughs> I did have to smile when I read this, but you said you once told your younger brother that he was adopted because you wanted to see how he'd react and you'd pretend your dad had left you. Now, I mean, some could argue that was pretty cruel um, sibling behaviour, but but I kind of understand what you're doing because you just were, you obviously had such a vivid imagination as well, didn't you? I did, but he was annoying me at the time, so I'd probably go with the, uh, with the, with the cruel thing he was being <laughs> annoying. Um, it was um, because there's only um, 11 months that separates me and my younger brother. So I told him it took 12 months to have a baby and that, um, you know, so one of us had to be adopted. And because I was the the oldest, it had to be him. Nice. And he just went off crying, you know, to, to mom saying, she says I'm adopted. And I was, I mean, I was highly entertained by it, to be honest. And, you know, I wrote it all down. Yeah. Um, and, you know, she explained to him, obviously, that... Uh, uh, it wasn't, but uh, it, it was entertaining. But yeah, I mean, I did used to, you know, I used to explore. I'd, I'd pretend that, you know, my dad had left us and, you know, four kids, mom, and I'd explore. I'd be in tears. I'd be exploring these emotions that I was feeling and writing everything down and, you know, gave myself into a, a, a a, a great emotional state and then you know you'd come back from the pub um and I just used to do that just to explore how these things felt so, <laughs> a little bit strange probably but uh, you know it's true I wouldn't necessarily say strange I think we describe that now as colorful childhood behavior colorful <laughs> <laughs> but so so there you were yeah I'll go with that I'll yeah in your colorful in your orange crocheted poncho <laughs> so but then, so moving on to your first chapter, so even though you clearly had this amazing talent and your English teacher had spotted something, you know, you said that this was just something, the idea that you wanted to be a writer, well, you know, that that just really was never an option. It wasn't something that you would do and you were sort of met with disbelief at this, weren't you? Yeah, I mean, the, the you know, the background that, you know, I come from, it, it's not something that you 
aspire to do and anything um, like that. The, it was, you know, basically, it, the, there weren't many options of direction that you were sent in and it, it really was a case of learn to type. You'll always have a job if you can type. So that was what I did and, and that was where, you know, I saw I saw myself being. So, so the idea, even though everyone kind of could see or you could, your teacher could see that you had this amazing gift, you would never have considered to be a writer? No, no, because it, it, it just seemed, I don't know, I suppose one thing, education, I certainly didn't want to continue in college because I was bullied um, quite a lot at school. So the idea of going into college was just horrific um so for me and my mom did say um you will go to college unless you find a job so i spent the summer holidays traipsing around um trading estates every business i could find just literally walking in and saying have you got a job um I tried funeral directors, I tried butcher, I tried everywhere. And luckily I did get a job before um before the, the term started because I really didn't want to go um to college. I didn't want to be back in the school environment again. I, I'd been counting the days until I could get out of it. So I suppose my perception was educationally speaking that to be a writer you would need to have gone to college, university, done English literature classes done, you know, continued in English language, creative writing, all those kinds of things. So, you know, from my point of view, without any kind of education or, or background, it was completely unachievable. Anyway, that didn't stop me loving the process of writing. But I didn't think that, you know, anything could come of it career wise. So I did what, you know, the sensible thing. And I, I took all the office based options at school office practice typing commerce all that kind of thing um so that you know I could get a job in an office basically and and that that was what I did but no we we were never encouraged to have aspirations above our station so to speak so yeah I, I, I kind of didn't it was the dream it was always the dream to be able to write to and call it a job um but I didn't realistically think that there was any any chance of that happening but I still wrote and I still loved to write so so you were still writing your stories at this stage but so that you're in your sort of going into your late teens your first job you say was in admin in a skip hire company but you basically you were fired after a week and a half yeah I think I couldn't chase those phones quick enough it was a place it was my first job and it was a place that if if the receptionist phone rang first but it was only three rings and it would transfer to another phone. And then again, it was only three rings and then it would transfer to another phone. And so if I didn't get the phone quickly enough, I literally was chasing these phone calls, you know, around the entire building, trying to catch it somewhere. Um, and, you know, they, they didn't give me any reason. But after about a week and a half, they said it wasn't working out. So, no. yeah, that wasn't. That wasn't, wasn't the best, be. uh, best first job to have had. No, but then you went to all different places. So you went to all different offices um, and eventually you worked as an administrator for a building maintenance department of a shopping centre. So you were there for quite a long time, weren't yeah. you? Yeah, I, I, that was at the Merry, Merry Hill Centre, which was um, not not far from, you know, where, where we used to live. And yeah, I, I was there as an administrator. 
for the for the the maintenance team which i absolutely loved but the person who was in charge of that department was also in charge of the security department and as time went by he felt i could be doing more than what i was doing so he moved me into the security department in a a kind of admin management role that then developed over 13 years to a duty management role. Um, so I was kind of responsible for the the team, uh, the welfare um, and rotors and all that. But I was also operationally responsible for the actual site from a security point of view from a Friday to a Monday morning. Um, so that was always interesting. Um, it was a great job. Um, and I will always say that, you know, if I had to work somewhere doing something, that was a really good place to work and a, a great job to to have. Um, no two days were ever the same. You never knew what was going to, you know, um, present itself to you. We had, you know, public order incidents. We had violent incidents. We had stabbings. We had attempted suicides. And then there were the celebrities that came. Yeah, and Russell day. Brand, Andy. Shall we mention Russell Brand at this stage? Yeah, he came He came to do a book signing in Waterstones, as quite a few people did. Katie Price on a number of occasions, many others. Um, and what we always had to remember was that it was a shopping centre. The majority of people that were coming to the place were coming to do their shopping. And so whatever celebrities you've got and whatever they were doing wasn't the priority of us as security. It was to maintain a safe um, environment for people to literally do their shopping. Um, so Russell Brand thought, you know, the entire centre was at his disposal and it was one of the biggest queues we'd ever had. And he wanted to go out and work the crowd. And it was no, because the the effect that would have on the fire safety and the health and safety of, you know, just general shoppers who were trying to get in and out of shops was it was too great. And he tried to insist. So basically locked the doors and said, no, <laughs> <laughs> the priority were the people trying to shop, um, you know, and, and, and get what they came to Mary Hill to get. So, yeah, yeah we stopped him. <laughs> and, and, and did he mind this? Did he? He got it. I think he got it. He, he, he did understand. He, he wasn't a bad guy. He, he was one of the better ones. Um, he, he did understand that. You know, it was a problem. And you know, the, although the crowd would love it, um, the rest of the shopping centre probably wouldn't. You know, and he, he was he was quite good about it. So now he. he he, he got a tick, he got a tick and he stayed inside and then we got him out the back way and we got him off site and then the day was much, uh, much calmer after that. The crowds all dispersed and <laughs> it was back to, you know, shopping as normal. Very good. Don't mess with Angie. That's what I say. This is why you didn't have one of those ponchos on Angie. <laughs> yeah, that would have scared him. Yeah, I mean, it might have done. He wouldn't have even dared go out to the crowd then, I don't think. All this time you were you were writing you were still writing and were you writing novels by this stage yeah yeah uh, I started I think I started first novel probably early 20s um and that I, I mean that's been published with through Bookature now as one of the women's fiction titles and that was uh, The Forgotten Woman um and it was just a story that just burned inside me not because I had any experience with it but 
I just I was interested to see um, alcohol alcoholism and how it affected different classes and you know a friendship. So it was about two. It's about two women who develop a friendship based on their addiction to alcohol and that they they couldn't be you know they couldn't be more different and it was just an idea that you know I wanted to explore so that was my very first novel um and once I'd finished it you know it was like oh what to do now so tried submitting it and that was that was when the submission started I mean I submitted lots of short stories um and never ever got one accepted uh, I did make it onto the desk of an editor for people's friend one time but it didn't get published um and so that was when the novel um the novel submitting started with uh, that first book and you know I'd send out 20 uh submissions a day and this was this was you know back in old school times where you go to the post office and you're posting off envelopes of three chapters a synopsis all with a stamped address envelope to be returned um and i'd go there with 20 and gradually they'd all come back and then i'd go down with another 20 and you know the writers and artists yearbook was you know the most used um book in you know on my bookshelf because i'd just scour through find another 20 um that i could send to and it, it was it was disheartening when the rejections came back and especially when you know you get five back in a day mm. and I'd actually feel sorry for the postman because I'm sure he knew what I was trying to do and the look on his face was like yeah they're heavy that means it's not good news they're sending it back um but it, it's like you've got to be in it to win it I never felt so helpless as when there was nothing out there because then there was no hope even if there was only one still out there if I'd sent off 20 and 19 had come back no if there was one out there there was still hope um so you know that one would come back and that would mean nothing was out there so get another 20 out there and then you've got hope again and it was just this constant you know constant cycle and you know some some rejections are quite sharp and you know impersonal but then there'd be the one or two that just gave you a bit of encouragement or you know said something that they'd liked but you know and that became a pattern over time with you know all the books that I submitted it was we like it we just don't love it and I, I didn't know what what to do to take it to that next level of writing something you know that they would absolutely love rather than just like um, I remember one particular um, rejection from HarperCollins. It was quite an in-depth one and it was clear um, that the book had been seriously considered from the response and the you know names mentioned, but ultimately it had been a no. And I don't know if that was even harder to take because I felt like I got so close and it had still been a no, you know, so it's 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 hard it's it's hard but when you love what you're doing you you know you're gonna keep doing it anyway it's just whether or not you've got the stomach to keep submitting that's yeah. that's the hard part yeah yeah oh absolutely oh my goodness well just just going back there at this stage had you met julie because you mentioned your partner julie i know how important she's been to you in all this H had you met her at this stage yes 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 julie and i met in our teens we've been together 
almost 35 years now. Wow. Um, so, yeah, she, yeah, Julie, Julie's been with me every step of the way. When we moved into our first home, which was a one bedroom flat, she fashioned a space in the bedroom um, consisting of the end of the bed and a dressing table which actually was a desk <laughs> and it was somewhere to write. And every time we've moved house, her priority has been to set up the writing space as quickly as possible. Um, and she's every rejection, like I said, you know, every rejection was met with it's their loss and it will happen. And no matter how many times I lost the faith or couldn't bear the thought of going on she would you know she would always be you have to carry on it's who you are um you're a different person when you're writing to when you're not um you have to carry on and sometimes you know she would do devious things like she would say um okay don't write go and just sit at the writing table but don't pick up a pencil don't pick up just go and sit there and just think just let your mind wander and she knew full well that if there was a notepad and a pencil there in front of me that eventually I was going to pick them up and start scribbling something down because I just couldn't help myself so yeah she she tried numerous um underhand tactics to uh, keep me going back to it so. And she'd leave the. I remember you saying this. She'd actually she'd say go and sit down, but then she'd like sneak the the pad and the pencil in there for you as well. Like when you weren't when you you know that was the level of commitment she had to this, wasn't it? It was brilliant. Well, commitment, deviousness, you know, <laughs> however <laughs> colourful, whatever you want to call it. But um, <laughs> you know, I oh. mean, she. That's the thing. She she never she never stopped believing in me. Um, and so even at my lowest, you know, she was always cheerleading and she's still hugely, hugely involved in the whole process from start to finish, finish with, you know, whether it's brainstorming, um, editing, going through. She types them all up for me and she reads as she goes and gives me pointers because, I mean, she knows the books and the characters as, as well as I do now after all this time. I mean, she never used to read crime and now it's all she reads. Um, so, uh, yeah, she, she's heavily, heavily involved. Um, and I, I do say the books wouldn't get written without her because I have so many, you know, stumbling blocks where um, <clears throat> I'll have a problem for days and days. And I'll, I'll say, Julie, can we have a meeting? And we'll have a 10 minute conversation and it's resolved. That's so amazing. she's incredibly involved yeah yeah well I mean what support and just just going back there so when you said before about you have the writers and artists handbook which um for those uh lovely people listening you know this is a this is like a book which I I have many copies of but that's where all the agents are listed and it says what they're looking for but how did you find out about this was this obviously it was all you just again you just taught yourself really because you didn't know anyone in publishing and this you slowly just learned this is what you were supposed to do yeah I think I think that how I started I think that um one Christmas Julie bought me the current copy and I'd never seen anything like it. It was like all this information in this one book, you know, it was like, it was an absolute Bible. Um, and I wanted to read it from from start to finish. Um, and, you know, as, as well as all the contact information, 
there's lots of other good stuff in there you know articles and how to's and advisory you know um pieces and i it just really did become my bible and i would have a new one every year because obviously things you know changing but that was before the information was also readily available on the internet it really was the only directory um available to find out who to submit to who accepted submissions who didn't um new publishers publishers that were no longer you know um in, in working and agents and so it, it really was this comprehensive um information and i thought it was amazing so you can imagine how impressed i was with the internet if oh, I was wow. yeah <laughs> you know, magic um, bowled over by the writers and artists yearbook but i absolutely loved getting a fresh copy of that um every year and i i, I did I, I used it well every year i used it well mm-hmm. well just before we move on to sort of what happened next i'm going to just say here because this is the point because i have heard your story before and you didn't have podcasts like i like we all have now and i think podcasts have been revolutionary uh, especially for learning about things like writing but other other jobs as well of how you get into it and the and the nitty gritty and i can remember i still remember to this day andy i was out uh running which makes me sound faster than i was like shuffling around and i was and i always listened to podcasts <laughs> and I, I was i was staying at my mum's house and i i'd been and i i didn't even tell I told some very close friends, obviously my husband knew and my mum that I was writing these books, but but very few people knew because I felt, I felt, you know, I felt stupid. I felt really stupid. Who do I think I am? Who wants to read my books? But but I just always wanted to do it. And when those, you know, you write, as you know, the, the first, whatever it is, 100,000 words and you're like, yay, I did it. Let's send. And you're like, come on, the world is waiting for my books. And then in the rejections come, you're like, what? Yeah. Oh, no. Anyway, this carried on and on and on. And I had no, I and I just, you feel more and more stupid, really. But yet you can't stop yourself from spending years writing and you're not doing other things because you're writing. And I was in this, I was kind of in the stage and I had another load of rejections, but you don't hear the, the nitty gritty of how many years. And I can remember the moment I heard this and about what Julie did with the pencil and the paper. And I just stood and I remember going, yes. And just thinking by this stage, I was like about, I think, nine, 10 years in. And I and it made and it was like, oh, my God. And it just met. I think that's when I came back and I actually messaged you because it was like, oh, thank you for saying this, because <laughs> because I don't feel so alone now. And yes, you do hear these stories more and more, but you don't hear like so many years and keep going. So. Anyway, I just wanted to bring that in. I will thank you again for what you did, but I just wanted to just this is why it's so special to me that you're that you're coming on on my podcast now. So you were um you were you were doing this and you were writing. So you were working really hard because you were working full time and you were writing. Then in two thousand and twelve, you did have a breakthrough. So and we are still let's just say we're still very much in your first chapter here because we haven't moved on to the next chapter. In two thousand and twelve, you were taken on by a top London agent. I mean, wow. But it wasn't so wow, was it? No, no, no. Julie and I uh, went and met with um, the agent in Hay on White and we were, it was at the, the you know, festival and we couldn't believe it. We were walking on, on air um, and, you know, I had no, no idea that it would become such a, such a negative experience. I thought, 
you know, I was absolutely thrilled, first of all, that, you know, he'd agreed to take me on. Um, but, you know, I made a lot of lot of changes to the book that have been submitted, which is now Evil Games. Um, and, you know, finally got it to a stage where, you know, the agent was happy with it. And he sent it off, but only to about eight publishers. And the, they were, you know, all rejected it. And I, I was I wanted him to send it to smaller publishers. I just wanted to share you know, um, my work, which is what I'd always wanted to do. But he, because of his standing and his other writers, would not have sent it off to a smaller publisher. It had to be a big publisher with a huge deal or not at all. Um, so he told me to write another one, but make it a police procedural, which was Silent Scream. And I wrote that in the January in a month around wow. full-time work wow and I'd never considered actually I'd never considered writing a police procedural and so I thought it was gonna go horribly wrong and so when I got to the end of it I was actually like oh it's a book I've got there 90,000 words okay and most of it makes sense <laughs> so uh, after it had been polished and you know edited and polished some more it went off to the agent he actually really liked it and came back with very little um, negative. And then he sent it to one of his readers who, according to him, loved all of the best crime authors out there and she hated it. And so he completely lost interest in that book, um, which he'd been right, um, be, which was, you know, it, it, he was the agent um, he knew what, you know, but no, he lost interest in it. But he handed me back to Keshenay, who was the reader, and said, if you want to try and sell it um, somewhere, feel free. And boy, did she try and sell it. Um, and when it failed, she was sending it to every publisher um, out there. And when it failed, he kind of like sent me a message saying, um, obviously, there's a lot of time an effort gone into you with no return. So, you know, I think it's time for us to call it a day. And in this, and this was two years later. And in, in all honesty, I was relieved. I was relieved because never had I felt so uh, insignificant um, as, as when I was represented by him because when we chatted, all he talked about was his famous authors and what they were doing right, as opposed to what I was doing wrong. And he'd suggested that I change the character of Kimstone completely. And I couldn't see the logic in that because none of the rejections that had come through had said that Kimstone's character was an issue. And so I didn't understand why he was that was his instruction so we, we we parted ways and that happened when at the point at which the redundancy money had run out from uh, my 19 years at, at Merry Hill and financially we have never ever been so uh, worse off we, we were so so um bad we couldn't make the mortgage payments uh, we were borrowing from family members we were selling our possessions just to make 
a mortgage payment. We couldn't get any help off the bank. Um, and, you know, I, I applied for a, a, a job in an Amazon fulfillment centre and got rejected, which was kind of like, that was a new low for me. And, uh, yeah, I, I just could not seem to get a job. I was trying for temporary work, for casual work, for anything at all. And it just it just wasn't happening. Um, and then I finally, finally got um, a job as a supervisor. Uh, working 12-hour night shifts in a, an alarm receiving centre. And I was just so relieved, so relieved. Um, so the, the the dream, because of everything that had happened with the agent and the financial issues, it, it, it kind of just, it was like, okay, put that to the side for now. Just got to concentrate on doing the training for this job and, you know, easing into this job and just, just make this work now, just have some financial stability you know put put the dream because I think probably my logical head said if this agent who represents these authors can't sell my work to publishers then nobody can so I suppose I kind of was really ready to give up then with the submitting and, and trying to get published because it, it, it was a case of if he can't do it for me, then no one can. It's never going to happen. That was my shot. It didn't work and it's never going to happen. So my focus was purely on the full time job and, and getting into the routine of working 12 hour night shifts. Yeah. Well, OK, right. Before we go on to that, just to go back a little bit. So so you took the. The, the job in the shopping centre you took redundancy from that was that when you got that when you were going to work with the agent that you knew you sort of took you took redundancy and took it as a bit of a risk that you're going to do this full time I did um because it was at a point where um the in-house security department had been contracted out and so it meant a whole new set of um terms and conditions and position changes and all that kind of thing that weren't going to, it just wasn't going to work well for our lifestyle and the jobs that were available to take, I didn't want to take. Um, and so it was, it was an opportunity given that, you know, I'd got this agent at the time, it was an opportunity to just see if we could make it work. And I'd been there for 19 years and I may not have made that decision had things not changed so drastically I probably would have carried on and carried on um but it was going to become an environment that wasn't going to be suitable so it was it was a good a good time to to go okay okay and so you said when you wrote the prime procedural that was with Kim Stone that was actually your first Kim book is that right it was, yeah. And he told you to write that. So I suppose at least you start, you did write a different type of book. So there was something. And sorry, I, and I'm interrupting you here, Angie. And so um, you said there was a reader who didn't like it. But Kashini, was she She was a reader who did like your work. Yeah, K Kesh was, um, she was the reader for the agency. And the reader that uh, the agent sent the book off to was just somebody that he would float, you know, books past and, and see what what she thought but no Keshni was the reader for the agency and um she she loved it and she couldn't have tried any harder to sell silent scream um so you know it was heartbreaking from my point of view because she was trying so hard and and 
nobody wanted it <laughs> you know so she did she didn't want the agent to drop me mm. um but she had no choice you know but to stop submitting it because she tried everywhere she'd send me a list each week with 20 25 more imprints that she'd tried and they'd said no so you know she she couldn't have tried any harder so this is this is actually like a, a structure of a book because this is the all is lost moment which we often find. It is. It is. No hope. There's no hope. Yeah. Yeah. No but hope at this point. <laughs> yes, but with every good story, there's a major twist about to happen. Thank yeah, goodness. Yeah. As we move, it's got to be a next... no hope moment. Yeah. No hope. So then. You move on. So there you are. You've started your new job as a night supervisor. You've got, you know, you're keeping your head down. You're working. You and Julie feel totally broken. Were you at this stage, did, was she still leaving the notepad out for you, the, the pad and the paper, or had she even stopped doing this? I think because it was a new thing for me, it was, um, uh, I'd never worked night shifts uh, before. So trying to think about writing at this point, because I'd literally only been there a week, a week and a half, something like that. It was more about, and I was also having to spend, it was a four on, four off shift system, uh, but I was still having to go in and train on my days off. Um, so there was very, very little time off to write at this point. So it wasn't, it wasn't really a consideration. It was just put everything, every ounce of energy into, you know, making this job work really. Mm-hmm. Okay. But then, so there we are, all is lost, we're all feeling terrible, but then you received an email. I did, I did. It was from Keshni saying, uh, when you've got a minute, you know, can you give me a call? This is my number. And it was it was quite strange because even when we'd been um, communicating a lot with, you know, her submitting the books and everything, it, it had very rarely been by phone it had always really been by email I think in that couple of years we spoke maybe only twice at the most so that in itself asking you know if uh, if I could give her a call when I had a minute was you know a little bit strange so um, I gave her a call and that was when she told me that she'd left the agency uh, but that she'd never forgotten about uh, Kim Stone and that she'd submitted Silent Scream to a young and dynamic uh, publisher called Bookature. And, you know, she hoped I didn't mind. And I think, you know, as, as I said, it, it was, I know it sounds awful to say, but I was a bit like, oh, that's nice. Yeah. You know, because at that You'd point, yeah, there was, there was just no, the, it was too dangerous to hope mm. because, you know, it had there'd been such a lot of disappointment that had crashed me so far down. I was trying to just struggle out of that darkness with, you know, doing a job that or trying to do a job, you know, that I thought I could do. Yeah, night I pretty much decided, you know, I couldn't write. Um, so it was, you know, it was like, okay, I'm trying to do something now that I feel quite confident I can do. I have a background in this, you know. And also it was like but I know what the response is going to be. I was so grateful to her. And it was so lovely that she'd thought about, you know, the books enough to um, to do this. But it was, I could not have that hope. I couldn't allow, allow myself to, because 
I knew what the response was going to be, which is, yeah, we like it, but we just don't love it. Because that was the response, you know, that they'd been for, you know, 20 odd years. And it was also the response that Kesh had already had with this book, with every other publisher. So it's not like she was sending out a new book. Um, so in my mind, it's like, well, everybody in the industry has already rejected silent scream. So why would, you know, Bookature be any different? So um, so it was one of those things. It was like, it, it was nice. But I, after the phone call, I, I didn't, I couldn't allow myself to give it a great deal of thought. It was just focus on the night job, mm. focus on, you know, just, just doing well, learning everything I need to learn. Get used to sleeping in the day um, and, and just focus on this for, for the time being. Mm. Um, so and that 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 was what I had to do. Mm. And it was a few days later that that, that changed. Wow. And... Yes. And then we had another twist. So what? So, Angie, so there we are. There you are. You're setting up your new life. But then something else happened. Um, I think it was at the weekend, which was, again, strange. Bookature, uh, they're a strange bunch. They work all hours. Um I think it was that that weekend I had an email from Claire um, Board, who was the publishing um, director at Bookature, saying that she was reading and loving Silent Scream. And my eyes was just scanning the email for the butt and I couldn't find the butt. Um, and she said, you know, what other ideas have you have, have you got, um, you know, around this 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 central character? And, you know, her enthusiasm, her passion um, and her comments, it, that kind of like just lit the fire again. And I couldn't reply to that email quick enough. My fingers were all over the place. And, you know, because, of course, there were two there were two other books written, which was what became Evil Games and Lost Girls. And I had loads of ideas for for more. Um so I sent this off, you know, like as quickly as I could with, you know, uh, the books that were written and the ideas. And, you know, she she sent one, uh, an email back saying, good to know, good to know. And I was trying, what can I read into those three words? Good to, good know. to know. And I tried, you know, what what did that mean? Did, was that good? And, you know, I think it was um, a few days later. It all happened very quickly. Um and this was uh, in sort of like September, October time. And I had a call from uh, Keshni saying um, they want to offer you a four book deal. And mm. the cherry on the top will be that I'm going to come on board with Bookature and be your editor. Amazing. Um, and it was like, goodness, you know, it was it was just all wow you know just all unbelievable i mean we we just didn't know what to think from one day to the next and then the contract came through and we had to sign it and it just it all felt incredibly surreal um at at, at that time because i suppose it was because of their passion you know to to them this silent screen wasn't um a second rate book that you know they might consider publishing if they had nothing better on the calendar they were passionate about it you know they loved the character they you know they wanted to 
do this with it and marketing and social media and you know I, I didn't have a Twitter account and I think I had 14 friends on Facebook and I knew them all and you know we were so far behind everything um, and their enthusiasm and, and passion just you know it rippled through the phone and the emails and it, it was like oh my goodness this is this is really happening. Oh, um, my goodness. And so there was, uh, then we, we went into, you know, editing Silent Scream and it was published in February. Wow. That, of that was 2015. 2015. Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my goodness. What did Julie say? When you got that contract through, what did Julie say? You know, she, she obviously, she was excited um, as me and she, you know, over the moon, but she was like, I did tell you, though, that if you, you know, stuck at it, I knew that you had and that some, that, that you had the, 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 the talent and the love of words and that eventually somebody, somebody would recognise that and give you a chance. And, yes, um, you know, so, you know, she she's she was absolutely over the moon. It was really exciting. But now she you know she said I, I just felt that it would happen it was what you were meant to do mm. um you know so it was it was an unbelievable unbelievable time we just didn't know what we were doing I mean when you know Silent Scream was released on pre-order um it started to climb the charts which hadn't uh, it was there were a lot of firsts that Bookature and I um experienced together but um it started climbing the charts and Kim, the uh, social media and publicity manager at Bukatua, um, she, you know, was all about social media and sharing this and sharing that. Well, I'd go off to work at seven o'clock of an evening into a sterile environment where I actually wasn't allowed to have my phone. So um, Kim was messaging Julie, um, you know, at all. I was saying, it's rising up the charts. Can you tweet this? Can you do a screenshot? Can you do this? And Julie had no idea what she was doing. Um, you had your pen, uh, your pencil and paper. You weren't into yeah, technology. Yeah. So she she was learning all these kinds of kinds of things in the middle of the night. And then I would have my lunch break at two o'clock in the morning, and Julie would stay up all night so that I could ring her at two o'clock and she could tell me all what had been going on because I couldn't look myself. Um, so we'd kind of have these two a.m. debriefs of where the book was <laughs> in the charts and who'd been tweeting what and what bloggers were reading it and how many stars and it was uh, it was it was unbelievable and so we these were night meetings and Julie was just holding the fort for everything while I was going off into this control room knowing absolutely nothing um about what was going on in the outside world until two o'clock in the morning every morning. <laughs> oh my goodness! And so, when the book actually went out, how long? How many years was it from your first ever submission to when it actually, when Silent Scream was published in two thousand and fifteen? How many years do you think that was? I would say that I probably started submitting around nineteen ninety. So. Wow. Um, that's what, 25 years? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, 25, about 25. I've only got another 13 to go. I'll be all right. I've got, I've got <laughs> the story will keep me going. I'm 12 years in. <laughs> um, it's, it's, oh, wow. It's like what we said, though, what, you know, what we've talked about before is that it, it, the biggest lesson is, I think, is that the, 
editors that they, they, they absolutely are experienced and you know they they know what they're doing but they're not always right no not always now you know so many people have connected with kim stone mm. um and the books in general um and one of the things the agent did say to me which i have to say is true is that if you can attract male readers as well as female readers you know the the books will do well and i am lucky that i i have so many messages from male readers um that clearly do identify with with kim stone as well mm. which you know that is absolutely brilliant so i love that she does appeal to you know yeah. to uh, everybody really <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely absolutely so, so, so well she really does but so kim says so that book so i should just say as well bookature you know i know of it well but this was a was very new at the time it was digitally first wasn't it which meant you didn't have your paperback in the shops but online which is where and this is where this is a whole different thing but it's just a, a different kind of like you're talking a ginormous in mind-boggling market um it went so this book, Kim Stone, that had been rejected, you'd left the agent, it went to number one on Amazon and it stayed there for a month. It did. It did, which oh. which everybody at Bookature, I mean, we were shocked. We were surprised. Everybody at Bookature, which at the time wasn't many people, um, they were shocked. And Oliver, who founded Bookature, Oliver Rhodes, I remember him doing a Facebook page saying, I always hope that 2015 we will get our first number one, but I never expected it to stay there for a month. <laughs> and it did. It, it, it really did. It, it Well, it just shocked everybody. All of us, we, we didn't know what to make of it, to be honest. And Bookature were the same. And it was great. And I always remember the morning, it was a Sunday morning that it went to number one and Claire, who you know I had that email from and who is now uh, my publisher is um she was out running and up and saw that it had hit the number one spot and ran into a hedge and <laughs> we've laughed about that many times oh, over the years but yeah she uh <laughs> Yeah, she's accident prone. We, we we try not to let her go running if no. there's anything going on because uh, she gets distracted. Yeah, you so. obviously have this thing with people going out running and like you affect them. There's something yeah. going on there, I think. But so, and, and that, this book, and again, I just it's just mind boggling. This book has sold now. That book again that was rejected has sold more than a million copies. I mean, yeah. when you even now, when you think that what when you think going back to how you felt those days when you're like, this is all over and you and Julian all those years, and you're like, I can't do this. They're telling me like they say, they say it's no good. It means it must be no good. It's now sold a million copies today. How does that make you feel? I can't. I think I still I still can't comprehend that number for a start. It's it's just so Oliver once asked uh, both me and Julie, what was our expectation of Silent Cream? Silent Cream. And we said we'd be happy if it sold 500 copies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, he said he said um, his expectation was obviously a, a bit higher than that. But even he just had no, no expectation of it doing, you know, anywhere anywhere near that so it's it's difficult it's difficult to comprehend the number but I'm just so grateful that people gave her a chance that gave Kim Stone a chance um 
the bloggers were amazing. There were so many bloggers that took um, Kimstone and the story to their hearts and they shouted loud and shouted often and, you know, with their blogs and book clubs and all that kind of thing. And, you know, they contributed massively to the success and, and getting people to read it. So, but I do, I'm, I'm grateful that everything happened the way it did because I believe that I was meant to be published by Bookature. I agree. Um, and, and digital first publishing suits me much more um, than traditional publishing ever would have suited me. So I think that, you know, I mean, I was submitting years before Bookature was even a, an idea in Oliver's mind, you know. So I think that, you know, it was meant to be that, you know, I had to go through that yeah. to get to this. Yes. And and for Bookature to, you know, um, be invented by Oliver and um, for that fit to be made. Yeah. So, you know, it works really, really well. And I wouldn't want to be published with, with anybody else. No, because then, I mean, this is, again, this is all part, it really is like a, a film story. It's amazing. Because then, obviously, then you saw the success. And so you were still working, but you did decide to leave at this stage. But it was... It was still a bit of a risk at this stage because you weren't quite sure how well it was all going to do, but you decided to leave your overnight job. Definitely. Um, what happened was um, the job wasn't what I thought it was going to be and it was on the uh, brink of making me quite ill. Mm. And um, it wasn't the best time to think about doing it, but I was breaking up for... Um, sort of like 12, 12 days off and I was struggling to get through each night shift um, for you know um, many many reasons but um, I remember speaking to Julie that night at two o'clock in the morning and she said to me she said leave it all in order she said leave it as though you're not going to go back mm. and I said you know I can't do that we're not in a financial position she said look I don't know what's going to happen now for the next couple of weeks while you're off on holiday, but just leave it as though you're not going to go back. Tie up any loose ends, have any, you know, make sure all your folders are in place, that your paperwork's all there. And when I went back to work after that lunch lunch break, that was the most enjoyable part of working at that place that I ever had because I had hope that I wasn't going to come back mm. and I didn't. Um, halfway through my time off, uh, Julie and I did our sums and, you know, we, we knew it would be a risk and we knew it might be difficult, but it was like, no, let's let's just do it. And we did. And <laughs> it, it, it all worked out. And, I, you know, and that's still um, a joke with us now. Whenever we get, you know, um, royalty payments from Booker Chill, we say, don't have to go back to work tonight. No, no don't you go know, back to that and, desk. Yeah, don't have to go back there. Um, and and that was that was how it happened. So yeah, probably not the best timing, but we we did consider our finances and do our sums. Um, and as I say, I think it was about halfway through my days off. I sent an email in saying I'm I'm not going to be returning. Mm. So mm. and I I just did never go back. 
so well thank goodness thank goodness but again oh it's just amazing and so then you so bookature offered you a four book contract which is just incredible but then also you then started to get you know all these agents and i mean they started to get back in touch with you (laughs) i I was going i was just getting emails from publishers and and agents uh, somewhere in new new york and you know those well-known people that just coming like in the inbox and saying you know we understand that you're with bookature for four books but what are your plans when that contract runs out we'd like to renegotiate for you we'd like to do this we'd like to do that and it was we've we've been going along nicely you know it's it's such a transparent relationship between you know, um, us and Bookature. There is nothing that I can't ask them. There is nothing that they don't help me with. If, if you know, I'm having any problems uh, on the technological side, anything at all, deadline side. And so it was, um, I suppose the word I use, it actually felt quite intrusive and overwhelming. It was like, no, this is, this is too much. I've just spent the last few months working with, you know, a publisher who's passionate, I can feel their commitment, I can feel that they, you know, regard the books and the character the same way I do, it it had worked, we'd all been having a jolly great time, and so the thought of either A, having an agent and putting a barrier between myself and Bookature, or B, the unthinkable, um, switching to another publisher to get, you know, to see my books on shelves um was unthinkable because by that time the dream and it is it is the dream and I understand why it's the dream to see you know the books on on shelves in supermarkets and bookshops in a way I was kind of over it because I was sharing the books people were messaging me I was going you know lots lots and lots of lovely comments and it was kind of like I don't that's not a necessary part of it for me now. But then a few books in, um, we did a deal with Bonnier to do something that hadn't been done before, where they wanted to take on just the paperback rights. And so they didn't have the ebook, but they wanted to get the books in the shops. And again, that was another exciting development. But it, it was kind of like, oh, that's great. That's really exciting. But you know the ebook thing is the priority the you know the digital market is you know definitely the the priority that's where the majority of the readers are but you know it'd be nice to pop along to a shop and and, and see a book there I wasn't against it so it was very exciting but it wasn't the the priority so when these other publishers were getting in in touch I, I kind of like did that a little bit I was a little bit oh no no you know go away um i'm happy and mentioned it to uh Keshine and she said well look you know we're we're obviously wanting to sign for more books whenever you're ready do you want to do another four and i said yes and so then i sent messages back to these people saying you know i've decided to commit more uh with you know bookature and so the messages started to go away and then when we started to get into the end of the eight book contract I think we were probably on about book six and Bookature said you know how many more do you want to sign for I said well how many more do you want and they were like well you know we'll take as many as you know you want to 
give us help, I'd another eight. So, yeah, okay. Oh, oh my <laughs> so, goodness. Because to me and Julie, the most important thing after the different stages that we'd been through was job security. Mm. And that was what Bookature were offering was um, job security, which is, you know, we're going to publish these books to a year for the, the next, you know, X amount of years. And I wasn't going to lose that for a two book deal with a traditional publisher mm. when I was perfectly happy, you know, where, where I was. I didn't need more than I had, yeah. which was the opportunity to share the books and to write for a living. And I've got, I've, I've got that. So it was like, there's nothing more that anybody can offer me that, uh, that is a better deal than Bookature because they've already given me everything that I wanted. So, and then I so say we got to the end of the 16 books and we've now signed for a further 12. Wow. So, <laughs> 12. Yeah, we're, we're, we're at it for another six years. Oh. So, which is, which is great. I couldn't, I couldn't be happier. I no. couldn't be happier. Well, it's exactly it. what I wanted to do. You deserve it. But you know what, as well, though, that just sort of shows again, I mean, this whole conversation shows the kind of people that you and Julie are. But, you know, you, what, what comes through there is the loyalty, isn't it? You know, the, the Bookature believed in you, Kashini believed in you and uh, and Claire and that and like you say the security but other there would be some people that would be really impressed by the New York um agents or publishers getting in touch like do you know what okay well now okay thanks Bookature I'm going to move on to this but it goes to show doesn't it I think if you work as well within your values it's not just all about kind of ego and seeing your your name up there which probably you know and and if you hadn't had been published sooner then you perhaps would have done that you perhaps would have gone ahead and done all that but what you'd been through and what Judy it's taught you so much and now you know I'm sure and I know you said this that now you you live in a house you've got you've got a seven acre field that you can walk around I mean no one deserves it more than you two but you you perhaps would if you had carried on and on and been greedy then it's the fact that you're enjoying this lovely life that when you were sitting in on writing on your dressing table you would have dreamt of something like that and it but it's lovely to hear somebody who says it's enough and that's an that's an amazing thing. But it it, it 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 is enough because I don't think that you know I I understand that for some authors you know they they do move around. But I never saw Bookature as a stepping stone to anything. Um, you know they they as I said because they gave me everything you know that I ever dreamed of. There is just no benefit at all to go in anywhere else but they've you know they've grown and grown and grown they've got some fabulous authors and we're all very very supportive of each other it, it's like a big family um and you know authors have come and gone from that family which is their their choice but i said to bookature that they would have to throw me out they would have to get security yeah. to you know physically yeah get you <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, loyalty is very important to me. And like you say, there's, you know, you, you have to hang on to your values regardless of, of what, you know, what's, what's going on. Um, and as I said earlier, because I do believe that it all was, it all happened to lead to this, then, you know, like I say, I, I wouldn't want to publish with, with anybody else. I really wouldn't. No. And can I just point out here, you have sold four million, more than four million books i mean i mean traditionally published authors bestsellers 
do not sell anywhere near that number. I mean, when you hit, when you see those figures and you hear that, I mean, you know, and we are going to move on. I'm conscious of your time, but how does that make you feel? Four million. Again, it's 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 numbers that it's numbers that I just can't contemplate. But what those numbers bring is people that send me incredibly personal messages, and you know that I can connect with rather than the numbers I can connect with the people that send me a message saying I grew up in the care system and Kim is quite a, a positive reflection of you know the the care system that you know it has its faults but somebody can come out of it and succeed and achieve um, and I get all kinds of personal messages with the different storylines and characters that have resonated with different readers and every time I, I read one it, it's it's just like oh my goodness I, I never expected this you know that's you know if I was ever lucky enough to share you know my work I never thought I'd be getting messages emails and what have you from people saying you've just helped me through a difficult time your books have you know distracted me uh, from this I had one and it reduced me to tears this woman who said that the books had got her through chemo and by the time I got to the end of that email I was in bits and I'm not talking ladylike little tears I was sobbing noisy messy you know all over the place because to be touched that way to know that something that you've done has given somebody in that situation even a minute of distraction there's nothing that is more rewarding than that so the numbers are, are great but what the numbers bring is the personal messages and connections to people you know one of my um best readers he's a 93 year old man he has the same birthday as me and he sends me emojis and jokes every day brilliant and you know we he's great uh it started because he sent me a message saying when's your next one out because i don't want to cock it before it's published <laughs> and that was about 18 months ago two years so you know he sends me jokes now and emojis and stuff and he's 93 yeah. and every time he sends me an emoji it just makes me laugh that's just amazing. So I, we're going to move on now to, to you to be continued. But to be honest, I kind of think we know what's going to happen. So we're guessing. So you've just signed <laughs> this deal. You actually had yeah. just submitted a book as well, haven't you? So I've caught you when yes. you're having. So yes. thank you for giving up some very well-deserved time off. But so you're going to be writing two Kim books a year. Yeah. Yeah. I've been writing two a year um, since we started. And that will that will continue. So with that, um, schedule. It's it's a set schedule that suits me fan fantastically. I love the two books a year. Um, if it was traditionally published and it was one book a year, I'd do absolutely nothing for seven or eight months and then try and cram it all in at the end. Um, so two books a year worked great. Um, but with that schedule, it's hard to think of projects over and and above that. I, I you know I have done a couple. I did the prequel. I did if only. Um, but it's not something I want to do all the time. I don't want to um, commit to three books a year. Two books a year works great for me. But then, you know, you never know. I might have an idea about something completely different mm. and, you know, start writing it if I get a minute. <laughs> let me just ask you, because this is a technical question and apologies to non-writers uh, listening that might find this, this uh, detail a little boring. But do you have a word count of what you write each day? No, because we... 
we we're quite flexible because we don't have children we have two you know two golden retrievers and they're quite flexible as well you know so if we're having a late night i tend to go with if, if i'm in it we call it the bite and it's you know it's it, julie says the house could absolutely burn down around you and you wouldn't notice because your hands just just you know writing away crazy um if if i've got the bite then i just keep going until i literally can't write anymore because you know i have it gets quicker and quicker and quicker as my hand tries to keep up with the thoughts uh, which is the only disadvantage of you know handwriting the first draft is trying to keep up um so once the bite has been exhausted that's when that session is is kind of over um if if i start to once i start to get towards deadline i know roughly where you know i should be word count or editing or polishing um so it might be a few late nights to catch up or to get me to that that position but we're we're very kind of like you know relaxed about it if we need to stay up till three or four in the morning we will and so it's late nights early mornings really to keep on track i'm glad you're not doing a book a month though like you did before i mean that's incredible Ninety thousand words in a month around a full-time job that's i don't know how i did it and this is the thing you see when i say to julie oh my goodness you know deadlines come in and you know i'm not going to be able to get this done she will always say silent scream you wrote it in a month while working a full-time job and that always brings me back to okay i can do it there are enough hours you know just just focus get it done so yeah yeah, she always uses that as a reminder quite right (laughs) can i just ask does your hand ache does your hand ache with all that writing with pencil yeah yeah it does um if i can sort of like a comfortable amount probably is two and a half to three thousand um a day but if i write more than that because i can't stop four or five has been known occasionally then the next day my hands kind of like it's it's dangling off the end of my wrist and it's a, it's a little bit sore um so sometimes it can be a false economy because it can be that then i can't really write very much the next day because my hand you know is is hurting um but again when you feel the bite you've just got to stick with it and and you know and, and until it's until it's gone really yeah. so but yes it, it can hurt <laughs> I bet it does I bet it does so moving on to your acknowledgements now I'm guessing who you're going to say here but who would you like to thank who's helped you along the way definitely Julie as, as a you know um we all want because, to thank Julie I know I know well you know the the authors in uh, Bookature they all want to Julie so I am considering <laughs> renting her out you know quiet yes, times please. but uh you know um but now she it, it, it is because she never lost the faith and you know at the darkest times she's my most fierce critic she will read um a chapter and she will let me know if it's not up to scratch she will and she's quite brutal um she will say i don't know who wrote this but it wasn't you um you know you really need to rethink that because she knows she what I can do if I'm properly focused. So she'll send me away saying, no, that's, that's, I read that chapter and I felt nothing. If that was your intention, great, but I'm, I'm sure it wasn't. Um, you know, so she's quite brutal, but by the same token, she's, you know, fiercest um, cheerleader as well. She, she's never, ever in all the years said to me, it's making you unhappy, step away. Never once. 
she might have said it's making you unhappy today so step away and read a book but then go at it fresh tomorrow mm. and so I wouldn't have continued I might have continued writing but I wouldn't have continued submitting mm. um because the the rejection would have eventually just made me frightened to send anything off in the post because of the way it made me feel mm. so Julie offered me that balance of just keep saying it will happen you have to keep doing it you have to keep doing it so Julie's always you know my first acknowledgement um and again, she's the only person that's been there from the very beginning. She's there when, you know, I can't find the right idea, when something's come to a dead end, where, you know, I've got um, a plot hole you could drive a buzz through. She's there for every part of the process. So, you know, I do call her my partner in crime. <laughs> Obviously, Kesh, um, Keshni, she will always be referred to as, my fairy godmother for what she did um she left bookature after book eight and i was placed with claire who had obviously been involved from the very beginning as well so you know it was a great handover and we we worked together brilliantly she's an amazing editor uh, but she always said she doesn't want the books until julie's been through them <laughs> so, <laughs> she's not interested if i go to send it to her, she says has julie been through it i'm like yeah she's had it <laughs> um and she she's fabulous so um the whole bookature team um they still treat every book as though it's the first they are still excited about the release um you know uh what the things that they want to do giving me opportunities you know to do different podcast videos facebook lives all that and and so you know you'd think 16 books in they might be a bit bored but they're not <laughs> so and that is that is great because you know like i say it, it's constant enthusiasm from them so and as i say everybody i've ever met because they're all in there somewhere yeah. there's no set person and a lot of people say is kimstone based on you know anybody in particular and she she isn't she's a mixture of you know lots of different people um but yeah, but I, I like to think that everybody I've met is in there somewhere yeah. in some shape or form. Yeah, so. watch out, Russell Brand. I reckon he's popped up somewhere <laughs> yeah. along the way. Yeah. yeah, with the orange poncho. Watch yes. me when I've got the orange poncho on. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I hope we do meet again. And when you do, I, I, I'm going to insist that you wear that orange poncho. I really, <laughs> I really do. I really do. So moving on to your tips and advice then. Now, obviously, we, this is all sort of focused on books, but somebody um, listening to this, I mean, this is a story of dedication, no matter what it might be that you um, you want to do. So... I mean, obviously with books and obviously, the, you know, you know, my um, amb and my ambitions and my my experiences, which is why I got in touch with you. But in terms of people who do want to write and be writers and in, I mean, I, I suppose I'm asking this advice for me, really, because I'm in this stage, you know, I've started putting my books out in my into the world, self-publishing them. But sort of I know I'm at the beginning of a, still a, a very, very long road. And I do, which is why you very kindly got back in touch with me. You heard me say that I was having a wobble um, and that it was so kind of you to ask asked me what that was and I was I was like god am I just being ridiculous you know it's that feeling of feeling ridiculous so as a first of all as a to, to writers in that position that you know exactly what it is what is your advice to people like me it, it is definitely to not I'm, I'm a huge believer in gut um in, in gut instinct and 
at different times over the years, I was asked to make different changes to different books and characters, you know, um, to try and please editors and what have you. And my gut always told me if it was the right thing to do or not, or if I, I was sending something in a direction, you know, that that um, it shouldn't go. So always trust you, you, what your gut is saying, but also believe that editors are not always right. And, you know, I, I like to think that, if anything, that should come from my story, which is, Silent Scream was rejected by everybody and they weren't right on this occasion, on this particular occasion, they weren't right. And so don't allow editors and agents to make you think that they are right. If you feel a passion for what you're doing, I like to think that nothing we do is wasted and that anything that didn't get published was still exercising the writing muscle. You know, that something is learned through this practice that we constantly do. So I, I like to think nothing is wasted, but you know, it, it, it is about self-belief and it's so hard. It is so hard, but they're not always right. They do get it wrong. They do make mistakes. And I think there are lots of authors out there that are also a testament to that. Um, and, you know, so believe in what you're doing. If you feel a passion for it, keep going because you just don't know what might happen tomorrow. You just don't. And again, you know, I, I had no idea, you know, as we've said, it was at the, you know, make or break moment. It was, you know, that it all happened and you just never know when you might get a call or an email or something um because it can happen any time and i do say you've got to be in it to win it as hard as it is um with the submitting every time you send off a submission submission you're sending off a bit of hope and i think that there is nothing worse than when there's nothing out there because then the, there is no hope and hope can get you back to the desk to start writing on the next mm. or to start developing the next idea. And so that if all your 20 rejections come back, you're already 15 chapters into your new one thinking this will be the one. Mm. This will be the one. I feel so passionate about this mm. one. This will be the one. And it's never wasted because that last one, you know, if you get published, they're going to want that one. They're going to want the one that you, you know, that the, they rejected. So it's it's never a waste. No. Um, and so just just keep going and don't don't believe that they're right because they they're not always they're not always right. And it's hard. It is so hard to keep going. But I always think as well is there's a difference between writing and trying to get published. And so if if you're struggling to get published and it's affecting, you know, the way you feel, step back from the submissions for a while and fall back in love with what it was that drew you to it in the first place. So, you know, if it was, you know, sitting in front of a, a window with a notepad and pens or getting your computer out or thinking up characters or, you know, developing a storyline, go back to basics, go back and remember what it was that made you start in the first place and reconnect because publishing you know spending so much time thinking about getting published can it can just kill that love 
and so you have to reconnect with it so if it's getting to the point where it's making you want to stop stop the publishing attempts and just reconnect with writing because it's more important that you write mm. and enjoy what you're doing and, and maintain the passion and just very finally, thank you for that. Very, very finally. If someone's listened to this and it's not about books, but, you know, they want to start an interiors business or, you know, they deep down, they want to retrain or they know what they're doing. Like you were going into that, into those jobs. It wasn't right. It, well, you know, you didn't. And Julie saw you suffering. If someone's in that situation, deep, deep down, they know what they want to do. What would you say to them, you know, rather than hide that, that what they really want to do, what would you say to them to, to bring it out? I, I would I would say to, you know, to make make the time to explore the passion. I mean, everybody's busy, everybody's working, you know, and, and it can be it can be really difficult to make the time um to 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 do you know to do what you want to do it does mean sacrificing when you're having to work full time it does mean sacrificing time with family you know um with with um going out and socializing it does there's no way it can't but you know if you're building a schedule and you try and write a bit of something every day it keeps that muscle working and it keeps you connected to the process, even if it's a page, even if it's a couple of paragraphs, you know, write something every day. And then you'll find that you write a little bit more and then a little bit more. And, you know, and it, it will grow over time, you know, as, as you work, work the muscle. I, I understand that, you know, it's not easy for everybody with financial commitments. Um, so, But you have to start somewhere you know, get into a habit of writing every day, you know, whether it be you get up an hour earlier or you stay up an hour later or something and make that time just for you. That's your time with words, a pencil, a computer, an idea, a character and just have that time. Um, and, and then obviously make, you know, make decisions based on, on your circumstances and which is something, you know, we haven't always done, but you know, so um, <laughs> great advice coming from me. Ah, uh, but, um, but now you walk in your field, so I think it is great advice. <laughs> With your poncho on. We love on. our field. When we moved into this house. I said to Julie, what are we going to do with the seven acre field? And it has become our happy place. Um, we've got sit on mowers that we go and mow it. We cultivate flowers for the bees and uh, the butterflies. And then, you know, we've thrown bee bombs and we take the dogs over there. So it, it's actually, you know, now it's like, what will we ever do without a seven acre field? It's become, you know, and especially through lockdown as well where, you know, we couldn't really go out and, and stuff. It, it became a, you know, a, a real good place to spend some time. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, Angie Martins, it's been a real good place being here with you today. It really has. I think your story is worthy of its own Hollywood movie, as I'm sure all your books are <laughs> as well. Uh, with you, with somebody's star, I can't wait to see who's going to play you and wear that, wear that poncho and play Russell Brand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Julie. But listen, thank you so much. Your story keeps me going on my on my trickiest of days, uh, my toughest of days. So thank you so much for being so honest thanks for being amazing and thank you for everything you've done oh you're welcome it's been absolutely lovely to chat i've really enjoyed it 
So there you are. Now look, do you see what I mean? Talk about inspiration. And it really is true on the days when I'm writing my books, I've got a blank page and I feel so overwhelmed, especially with an inbox full of rejections. I think of Angie's story and now whatever it is you're thinking about or feel a bit stuck with, I really hope you'll think of Angie's story too. Now, to find out all about her books, you can go to angelamarsons-books.com. I'll put the link in the show notes. If you want to know more about me, and do remember, I really am at the other end of the scale, I'm at elliebarkerwrites.com. If you enjoyed this episode, it would be marvellous if you could rate and review it. Even subscribe, and even better, recommend to a friend. Who knows, it might help them too. You're listening to the next chapter by Ellie Barker, a flower pot production. Remember, keep going. Don't give up. We really are all in this together. Angie thinks you can do it, and so do I. Speak soon.